Hi, I'm Samuel. And I'm Bentley. And this is the Re You Podcast. Podcast. And my favorite version of Jabba the Hutt is in a movie I call Touch of Evil, starring Orson Welles. So we got our Star Wars reference in right away. Yeah, yeah, we've checked that box off. But <laughs> so last night we watched Touch of Evil, which is directed by, produced by, written by, and starring. Orson Welles. Orson Welles is how he sounds in the movie. Yeah, yeah. And it's really his last great film. Uh, Hollywood turned him into a celebrity after this. I'm going to try to not make this just a total uh, geek out about Orson Welles. But it's been very interesting to me to watch your generation, the millennials, kind of pick up on Tesla as like their favorite hipster tortured genius, right? I mean, you can see Tesla's stories and graphic novels and he keeps popping up in movies. Like he's the guy that you guys all sort of obsess about. Like, oh, he was so unjustly treated and he's the true genius, not Edison, blah, blah, blah. Well, for my generation, for Generation X, that was Orson Welles. Yeah. And typically, if you want to show somebody the Orson Welles movie, it's Citizen Kane, which a lot of critics rank as the best movie ever. Then the people who try to act like they're really in the know will say, well, no, actually, The Magnificent Ambersons is his greatest. I have problems with that movie. It's very melodramatic. I love Touch of Evil. And here's why. It literally is a demonstration of why we have a canon. We have a canon to pass on what we think is important. And Touch of Evil shows up in one of my other favorite movies, the uh, mid-90s classic Get Shorty, starring John Travolta. And Oh, God, when are we going to do a Get Shorty podcast? We, we have to do a Get Shorty oh. podcast. It's a fantastic movie. There's it's not got a, Danny DeVito in it. Uh, <laughs> driving the Cadillac of minivans. It's perfect. And in that movie, John Travolta, uh, you know, he loves movies. That's a huge part of his character. It drives the plot. And at one point, he goes to a matinee showing in a rundown historic theater showing Touch of Evil. Yeah. Okay, so, so that is Barry Sonnefeld and the creative team behind Get Shorty saying to anybody watching Get Shorty, you need to know about Touch of Evil. They are literally passing it on, and that's... One of the main reasons why I checked it out in the mid-90s, and it is Orson Welles' last great movie. Did you rent that from the Williamsburg Public Library when you first saw Touch of Evil? <laughs> did you check out a VHS copy of Touch of did. Evil? <laughs> so, Touch of Evil, I had no you know prior knowledge of, really going into this blind. Uh, the actual star star, the first build star on this film, is actually Charlton Heston of Planet of the Apes film uh, fame. Yeah, And he plays a Mexican detective, which they've basically just kind of make up him up a little bit to make him darker, which has its own problems, but... He doesn't have any sort of an accent. He's just Charlton Heston. He's just Charlton Heston. And, and he's, he always does this thing where it seems like he's trying to speak on behalf of all of Mexico. Like, <laughs> so the inciting incident of this film, um... Which is, by the way, preceded by a three-and-a-half-minute tracking shot, which is beautiful, uncut. All you you hipster people out there who love Children of Men, who are like, oh, it's such great action sequence, it has a complete uncut you know, tracking shot, shut up. Go watch Touch of Evil. It's amazing. And he's doing it with a much higher degree of difficulty, but that's a rant for another time. No, no, that's a rant for this podcast. That's okay. why we're doing this podcast. So let's stop right there and just say that 
This movie comes out in 1958, and it's black and white. Now, I always tried to get you and your brother to watch black and white movies. I tried to not overwhelm you with them. Uh, I do appreciate that you have watched some with me. But I recognize that it was very hard to get your generation to watch black and white movies, just because you've grown up in an uh, an age of media saturation. Yeah, and all the media is actually literally saturated. (laughs) Yeah, well, so it's in color. (laughs) It's it's in color. Uh, you know, so to watch older movies that have a slower pace than you're used to, that's hard. And and a lot of those are in black and white, that's hard. But things like Touch of Evil, you have to recognize what an achievement they were at the time. I yeah. still think Touch of Evil is very watchable. When we saw it last night, it was the first time I'd seen it in more than a decade, and I still loved it. It is black and white, but you know what? A three and a half minute tracking shot outside where you've got this swirl of action, you know, you're following a car is is the first object in the tracking shot, but then he transitions to following pedestrians and then the camera stops on a border guard and then starts to move again. Holy cow, it's unbelievable. It's basically impossible. I have no idea how he got this stuff. 3 and a half minutes and he's shooting it at night. The last take the the border guard kept blowing his line, okay? So finally, Orson tells him, the light is coming up in the east. They've been shooting all night long. And he tells the actor playing the border guard, he says, look, just move your lips and we'll dub it later. But whatever you do, don't say into the camera. I'm sorry, Mr. Wells. Because that's how he kept blowing the line. He kept calling Orson by his name. <laughs> so they finally get the take that shows up in the movie. It's the last one of the night. And it's incredible. Three and a half minutes of one continuous shot. Yeah, so they, and that sequence culminates with a car bomb, basically, an explosion of dynamite. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, and to get back to my original point, Charlton Heston immediately goes, This will be terrible for the Mexicans. Like, it's like, <laughs> what, dude? First off, you are a Mexican in this movie. Second off, like, what? Like, because they're on this border town where the lines are blurry yeah. and whose jurisdiction is who is part yeah. of the conflict yeah. here. And it's just, it's just so weird. He's supposed to be like an exemplar of the Mexican police force. And, and it's... I actually like that. So we, we need to take a, a moment to describe the plot a little bit and describe the characters. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Because uh, you, the, you take over for the that. background story is that Wells is brought in on this and does a massive rewrite on the script. Uh, and in the original, the Charlton Heston character is Caucasian. He's American, and he's married to a Mexican wife. Well, Heston flips that. Yeah. He turns the wife into Janet Lee, who's just gorgeous in this movie, right? There are actual little mm. nods to her role in Psycho, by Janet the way. Lee. Oh, my Lord, she's gorgeous. So she is kind of this feisty, Caucasian, you know, American, married to... And here's why the Heston thing works. I think anybody who's heard a little about Touch of Evil knows that joke. They, you know, it's it's something that you would say in a cocktail party, like, oh, Touch of Evil with Heston as, an, as a Mexican. How racist and terrible. Except that part of the script conflict that, Wilson, that Orson Welles builds in is that he is an exemplar of, like, the professional police class in Mexico City. The reference in this story is that he has busted... Uh, big narco yeah and you know and he's dressed in a suit you know he is like this well-respected famous technocrat policeman from mexico city which is a major city and now he's in this scumbag 
dirty border town where the American is Jabba the Hutt. Yeah. Right? He's, Orson Welles is filthy. He's he's uh, he's hobbled. He's hobbled. He is literally a disgusting version of humanity and a terrible policeman. So the way Orson has flipped that does allow people to sort of make fun of this ridiculous makeup and Charlton Heston clearly not being a Mexican, except that there is some value in it because he's this straight arrow who, by the end of the movie, you know, his shirt is all ripped and he's frantic, he's looking for his wife. And And he is the hero. He's the hero, but he is, you know, in, in what would be a very familiar arc to modern movie audiences, you know, he's being dragged down to using some of the techniques that the bad American cop has been using for years, right? So... It's a very interesting uh, character study. And I'd like to say before, uh, I don't want you to say this. I've thought very carefully about how we'll describe this. So the movie starts with this explosion. And what I hate is that Hollywood interfered with Wells' stuff all the time. The problem was he was a true genius. He didn't want to follow their system. He wanted to tell daring and dangerous stories. And they were constantly messing with his creative process. So this movie, he films largely at night to basically keep the studio spies literally in the dark, right? They, they don't know what he's shooting until they see him finally turn in, you know, his cut of the movie. And then they do a massive recut because it's just too dangerous, too messy. And they film messy. new scenes. They film new scenes to try and make things clear. And I think they insert a throwaway line at the very end of the movie that explains who plants the bomb at the beginning of the movie. And unfortunately, that one line ruins all of the character study that Wells has put into this movie. I wish that line were not in the movie because you know what? It doesn't matter who plants the bomb. The movie is not about that. Wells Hmm. specifically was trying to make a movie like The Big Sleep, another one of my favorites, you know, a noir classic starring... Uh, Humphrey Bogart, that The Big Sleep, I've watched almost 10 times, and it's really hard to trace the plot. You you come out of that recognizing the great scenes with great actors and great lines, but you're like, well, wait a minute, who did what? Because it's not that important, right? Sometimes crimes don't get solved. And 1958, when Touch of Evil comes out, remember in the comics, the comic code has really just been uh, put in place, and the idea was... You could never show that crime pays, right? The bad guys always have to get caught. And of course, Hollywood was right in line with that. You could not have anything that was too messy or too ambiguous. And so that this throwaway line at the end of Touch of Evil is the Hollywood suits being like, oh my God, we have to say who planted the bomb. <laughs> I don't think Orson cares who plants the bomb. It doesn't matter. Yeah, yeah. I always just kind of saw it as uh, that that ending where they say, oh, this is who planted the bomb and isn't that ironic. I thought it was kind of like, I actually think it's right in line with some of these detective noir stories where there's that kind of final irony, you know? Mm. I, I don't feel, you seem to think that it, it really damages the film. Yeah. I think it's neither a positive nor a negative. Mm. I think it makes it more tropey, perhaps. Mm. But I don't think it's unearned and i think i think there is a great cosmic irony to nasty gross detective that orson welles plays being right after all and he didn't need to have take the methods that he did Mm. i i i 
I, you know, actually, as I'm talking about, I kind of think it adds to it, honestly. That final irony of, you know, here's his career and it's always been slander and planting evidence and intimidating witnesses and blah, 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 blah. And here's a really big case. And he uses those same methods, but his hunch was right. And, and I don't know, I think it lends itself a bit more tragedy. And I think it makes it muddier. And I think the movie is about justice. What is justice and how do we go justice? about Justice! <laughs> What's justice? Where is he? What do you do? Where do you put those people? Which, of course, is a discussion in other movies. Justice! <laughs> but in this one, uh, you know, there's a clear sense that uh, in the post-war era, you know, we have these kind of young bucks, right? There's an American assistant district attorney who kind of partners up with Vargas, the character played by Charlton Heston. And they literally go into the archives. I mean, they're technocrats. They literally are trying to do it by the book, by the paperwork. In fact, Charlton Heston is basically, you know, Vargas is endangering his wife. She is being tormented in this. Tormented is a really polite phrase for this. It's a polite phrase, you know, while he is literally in the archives trying to figure out. So he drops his wife. (laughs) At a, like, out-of-the-way motel with... The first, psycho motel, The basically. psycho motel, basically. And, like, the bad guy's goons, like the this local yeah. criminal syndicate, yeah. come and do some real... It's implied to it's be dark. some really it's terrible really dark. stuff. Like, <laughs> even the lightest interpretation, like what they just flat-out say they have done, yeah, is... is not... Pleasant. It's in quite any disturbing. Way. It's quite yeah. disturbing, and the implications of the scene are even worse. And right, and it right. just it it's, it's not out of place, but it's just tough to watch. It's tough it's, to watch. it's it's in line with the tone and the themes of the story, but it's like. And meanwhile, oh, Vargas God. is in the state archives looking at paperwork. So, yeah. but so that's I think that's intentional. I mean, with, that's the great. Our tour theory of directing is people like Wells. If you see something in a movie, he meant that. Uh, for the most part, you know, except for the Hollywood uh, suits. Are we really going to go this whole podcast without talking about the 48-page memo he wrote? Well, we can talk about that. So he wrote, So we talked about the fact that he gets his film recut and, and the studio ad scenes and does a bunch of stuff and messes with a bunch of things that, that he didn't want messed with. And he writes them a 48-page memo detailing the things that he thinks don't work in the new cut and begging them to not release it as it is. Yeah. And what did he call the movie? He has a phrase for it. A series of motion pictures. Or a series mm. of visual... Hold on, I have to look it up now. I have to look God. it up. I uh, keep talking. That's all right. right. Stall, so, stall. So here's another place where I'm going to defend Charlton Heston. And, and that's something that you're going to hear on the Review podcast. That, you know, the, the popular view of Heston at this point, you know, is, oh, he was terrible. He's this old fuddy-duddy, you know, head of the NRA at the end of his career. You know, his cultural stock right now is pretty low. But you know what? The only reason that we were able to get a late 90s recut of Touch of Evil that matches Orson's vision, according to this memo, is because Charlton Heston saved the memo. Here we go. I close this memo with a very earnest plea that you consent to this brief visual pattern to which I have given so many long days of work. Brief visual pattern is how he describes movie. That's his synonym for movie. (laughs) So Wells was a genius. I've watched a lot of Wells' stuff. I even saw they did a 90s release of his Othello. 
he had a movie that was not finished, a black and white version of Othello that's quite brilliant. He had all these projects in his head that he, you know, finished to varying degrees before they basically broke him, right? Touch of Evil really kind of broke him and for the decades of his life after that, all he does is just pop up as a celebrity. They turned him into a celebrity who shows up at the end of the Muppet movie. Then he's selling wine in the late 70s. Get the Muppets the standard rich and famous contract. <laughs> and, you know, he's the voice of... who? What is he on Voltron? He's, he's not the voice of anything on Voltron. He's the voice of Unicron in Transformers. Megatron. <laughs> I will make you big. Like, it's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. It's the last thing on his IMDb profile, chronologically. Yeah. So he was a true American genius, and I like... A rich, full-body wine, sensibly priced at a dollar a jug. <laughs> and now for a little magic trick. All right, enough! jug disappear. Oh, no. This poor man. Okay, so... <laughs> I like movies. You'll hear me say... I like wine, so this is a great podcast. <laughs> that I like movies where okay, everybody like knows wine. what they're doing, right? There are certain movies where like one or two stars kind of carry it, and you'll hear us talk about those. But the great movies, you can tell everybody knows what they're doing, and they, they play their part in making a, a piece of art that's really a gigantic committee, right? Hollywood movies take hundreds of people. And the ones that rise up into the canon are very special because they've got a great mix of talent. And so Charlton Heston actually pays money out of his pocket to help do, you know, the shoots that get this movie across the finish line. And Janet Lee uh, reams out her agent because he had refused her being in this movie just because she was offered so little pay to be in it. But she said... All that mattered was working with Orson Welles. She didn't care about the pay. She wanted to be in an Orson Welles movie. And this is one of the great things in her whole career. This movie has Marlena Dietrich in it. Yeah, God, that's so weird. So Marlena Dietrich, famed great German actress, made fun of in one of our favorites, Blazing Saddles. I am tired. (laughs) And an icon for Madonna, okay? Dietrich is in the canon herself, and she does one day of shoots. One day of and she gets the closing line. She gets to sum up this awesome noir study of character and justice. Yeah, and it's awesome. I mean, she is... When you first see her, you're like, what in the world? Like, she's really out of place in this, like, Mexican border town. Yeah. But by the end of the film, you're like, no one else could have done it. No, no one she's, else could have done she's it. seen it all. And there's a backstory between her character and, and, Orson. and yeah. Orson's Job of the Hut. It's beautiful. And you this, keep using Job of the Hutt as your as your reference point, but I, I've always I'm always going to go with Harvey Bullock from the Batman comics. Yeah, but nobody knows who that is. <laughs> nobody so. knows who Harvey Bullock is. <laughs> um, and it has Dennis Weaver. So nobody today remembers who Dennis Weaver is, uh, but he had a long running career. He started on Gunsmoke, uh, the TV show. Uh, he had his own. Uh, kind of Western cop show in the 70s that was very famous. He is in Steven Spielberg's first uh, feature-length story, Duel, right? He's the everyman who gets chased down by this anonymous uh, stalker truck driver. And he shows up in Touch of Evil as a really weird oddball just like night shift motel manager. Right. And as I'm watching that again, I'm thinking this is where a whole bunch of the Coen brothers movies get their inspiration because Orson has a way to work in these oddball characters like Marlena Dietrich's character, right? She's not in very many scenes, but it's so well thought out and defined and the actors bring something to it 
that isn't explained on the screen, but you can tell they've thought about the character and it's a fully formed character, right? And so Dennis Weaver shows up and it's weird. It's unsettling, but that's exactly the role he's supposed to play in this story. Yes, indeed. It's beautiful. I mean, I kept making fun because he was just so wild-eyed and twitchy, but I thought he was doing a very effective job. I was basically he, trying to keep myself comfortable because he was so weird. But he's exactly the kind of guy you find in motels like that in the middle of nowhere, yeah, yeah. being the night shift manager. Yeah, right? yeah. That's the role he's going to play in yeah, society. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and characters like that keep popping up in things like the Coen Brothers movies. You yeah. see that all the time. Yeah. Let's talk about some more of the technical stuff. This is actually the movie, not just because of that tracking shot. It's also well-known because it's the first time that you actually get a scene filmed in a moving car that doesn't use that stupid backdrop thing, right? Yeah, so where Hollywood, they have the, the wheeled backdrop that's, that's running in the background. You watch any movie from the 40s, and Hollywood would sit people in a car, and they'd have this stupid, you know, projected image of like a city street or a countryside, and they're just laughable, yeah. right? In great movies... You get this scene where they're driving in this car, and it's so fake. It's yeah. like their version of the green screen. Yeah, so this is the first time where they just mount a camera on the front of the car. And somehow figure out the sound. Well, I assume they overdubbed it. I assume they dubbed no, it over. It's pretty well done. And location is a big part of this movie, right? This movie has to happen in a border town that's really gritty and, and falling down, and the morality is is completely questionable. And so this car scene isn't just technically beautiful it's showing you that city it's literally showing you the rundown buildings and they're driving along yeah and it's the two technocrats it's uh, vargas and the american assistant district attorney and they're it's a full scene in a moving car and it's the first time that we'd ever seen that in hollywood yeah um some more technical stuff um i don't think we've really talked about yet like, you know this is a black and white film this is mostly a a black film. There's not a lot of <laughs> black and white here. Uh, there's There are whole scenes where I don't think they used anything other than the natural lighting of the evening. I think that's because right. Because it's pitch black. Yeah. You can't even see silhouettes. There's, there's, there's just so many scenes where there's maybe one source of light or there's a source of light mm -hmm. that's oscillating. Mm -hmm. It's It's so stark in its contrasts. Which, and of course, Wells means, right? Yeah. So you can actually see when... The scene where they discover the evidence uh, that's been planted is done in the afternoon. You see the characters walk into this residence, and it's clearly afternoon light. But inside, he then cranks down the light so that as the technocrats are debating with Jabba the Hutt, you know, you can see the characters go in and out of light. And sometimes they are in silhouette, and they're just dark as they're wrestling with what is justice and how do you go about pursuing it? Yeah, and there's a scene where a character, you know, chokes out another character with their bare hands. And and it's like there's this weird pulsating neon sign outside, which just will yep. occasionally splash the room. And yeah. then it withdraws and splashes the room. Mm -hmm. and, you know, it's it's very effective at setting the tone that Orson is going for. It's very intense. Um, you know, even even stuff like he finds a way to make, make even the car bomb, the explosion, the... the, the fire of that seem really isolated like the fire of that doesn't really seem to cast a lot of light almost like it's, it's no in fact it's quite apocalyptic uh i think you know it's a big car explosion this is not a well it's a car explosion but then it's funny how immediately the the cops allegedly they're like at a political fundraiser nearby so they all rush in so some guys are literally in tuxedos 
it's very jarring. And then the Orson Welles character, you know, this this sheriff type guy, comes in and he's wearing, you know, a big overcoat. He's shambling. He's he's almost like a moving mountain. He's really a physical presence. And the car is still burning in the background, and they're all sort of talking over the top of each other. It's very there are no boundaries in this movie. A movie literally set in a border town should be about a boundary, and yet the boundary is shifting and changing, and you don't know where it is at all times. It's yeah. fascinating. Yeah, and the dialogue, actually, we haven't talked about, is very naturalistic. People will talk over each other. People will interrupt each other, and not in, like, the Hollywood interrupting way, like, just interrupting each other, yeah. talking over each other, and, and it's happening so fast, and it is it is difficult at times to follow what the plot is supposed to be where you need to keep your eye what ball are you supposed to be following mm-hmm. but i think that mirrors the character's own confusion and that's what makes it a great movie you know what people don't talk in very neat sound bites like a lot of hollywood movies hand it to you well we do but that's okay <laughs> life is messy i'll tell you another technical thing that's great about touch of evil is there are a whole bunch of times where he does a far focus right orson is known for raising and lowering the camera and you certainly see that in this movie citizen kane is known for that where if he wants to make a character seem small morally he jacks the camera way up in the sky if he wants to make them seem threatening and and you know imposing and suddenly they're having a big moment he drops the camera below their waist right so that's well known and it's easy to see but in this movie there is a distance he literally will have a a a character sort of Standing in the foreground and then maybe uh, uh, another character that's been talking to them in a very typical Hollywood staging where they're almost like in the same plane and their their toes are lined up, which is very artificial. Then all of a sudden, you know, one of those characters will walk away, but the camera stays in the same place so that suddenly the second character is way back in the frame and is very small, but he's still talking to the character in the foreground. And that means something, okay? That that kind of back and forth, rise and fall, and yet they're still in conversation with each other is really interesting. Yeah, there's a great overhead shot as well at one point when Orson's character is drinking in a bar. Yeah. That's really, like, harsh and really reinforces kind of the morality of the film. And I, I was just kind of startled because I wasn't expecting that angle to be there at this time. Because this film. he had been shown as larger than life. He literally fills the frame for the first half of the movie, and then he gives in. We were told that he had been uh, sober for seven years, I think. A long time. Long time. You know, he's he's clearly had demons. There's a backstory to him uh, that affects this plot. And then we see, you know, one of the drug cartel mafioso guys get him to drink again. And that's when all of a sudden you see his character very small in the frame, camera way above him. Yeah. It's beautiful. It it really packs a punch. Yeah. So that's what you get out of a black and white movie. You get a lot of great lighting. You get the uh, dialogue, right? Uh, that's pretty well known that in old Hollywood, because they didn't have the special effects, they made the characters really special. Yeah. And that's why I keep trying to, to get back to these things. So Touch of Evil, hard to argue that you should watch that instead of Citizen Kane or some of the other stuff that he's done. I don't think it has done. to be an either-or thing. Though. I, I think I, it's in the canon. I think it's in the canon. Touch of Evil, if you like any kind of crime drama today, or if you have any love of the well-known 
noir movies from classic Hollywood, you know, the Humphrey Bogart stuff, you need to watch Touch of Evil. Yeah, and I think there are things that audiences will need to know, modern audiences will need to know before they go in. I mean, obviously, Heston in, uh, what would you call it, Mexican face is yeah. not great. And, and though he his character is written in full respect and, and is a perfectly reasonable and good you know depiction of any human being... At the end of the day, it is a white guy in, in, in brown face or whatever. And if they were remaking it today, we all know who they would cast. Is it San Antonio de Banderas? No, Jimmy Smith. Oh, I guess, yeah, they cast <laughs> Jimmy Smith. Um, and the other thing is the stuff with Vargas and, uh, with again, his, Charleston Heston. His wife his is, wife is rough, yeah. really implied to be very, very, very dark. There's nothing on screen that you see, but the implications are very dark. And, and that was tough for me. It was tough for her. Uh, in interviews afterwards, Janet Lee, you know, she really almost had a breakdown after that scene in the hotel room. So, I mean, the actors knew what was going on. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's rough, buddy. But, um, but that's also why this is an important movie. Because in 1958, you know, you're getting Hollywood handing you Doris Day movies. And Orson Welles is making this. It's dirty. It's yeah. messy. It's tough to watch. It is tough to watch. Um, you know, and so if you like the Coen Brothers movies, if you like things like The Wire, any kind of a you know gritty police drama these days, then you should watch Touch of Evil. Yep. All right. Thank you, folks, for listening. This has been the Review Podcast. Podcast.